0: All right, let's 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 bow and start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day that you have made. We thank you for the great joy that it is to gather as the body of Christ and worship you on this Lord's Day. Uh, we thank you especially for your word and how you re- have revealed yourself and revealed your plan of redemption in your word. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have over the next hour or so to gather around your word and to uh, study. It. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds and uh, enable us to learn what you're trying to teach us from your word today. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, we would uh, we would uh, make it a part of who we are and uh, that we would truly be doers of the word and not just hearers that we would apply your word to our lives and we pray these things in Jesus name amen so here we are in part number 23 so we're in a 39 part series uh, studying the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, the book of Revelation so uh, this lesson is going to be called the seventh trumpet and the war of the ages so we've got, um, uh, we're starting into a section of scripture that is a little bit unusual uh, from, from this lesson all the way through the end of uh, chapter 14 is kind of um, a recapitulation of history, uh, if you will. And then also it's a, a looking forward to events which are about to unfold. Um, and so we're going to have the war of the ages, and we're going to have a prelude to that war here in this lesson. Uh, so we'll talk about the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounds here in 1115, and we're going to look at the praise for God's sovereignty, some proxisms of rage uh, by the nations, some plan for judgment, some promise of communion, um, and then we'll look at the prelude to the war. To end all wars. Uh, that was the name given to World War One. but obviously World War One did not end all wars. But this one that we talk about here in the book of Revelation will end all wars, in fact. Um, and so in this prelude we'll look at the woman, the dragon, and the male child. So we're going to look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 in our study today Uh, but first we're going to look back at we're going to review what we did last week So last week we looked at the first part of chapter 11, uh, Revelation chapter 11 through uh, 1, verse 1 through 14, and we looked at the two witnesses. Uh, But first, at the very beginning of this is a curious event. John is given a staff and he's told to measure the temple. And so he does. He he measures the temple. And we talked about the fact that this is best understood as signifying God's ownership, his possession over his people. God is measuring all Israel, symbolized by their temple. Um, There's the the image of the altar and those who worship uh, in the temple. And so this is the the tribulation temple. Um, The the first half of the tribulation is under the patronage or protection of the Antichrist and the Jewish sacrificial system is restored as we have prophesied in the book of Daniel. Um, And that the reinstitution of that temple worship reawakens interest on the part of Jews in their Messiah um, and many will realize during this process that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins as we see in the book of Hebrews um, but the reawakening of this interest in the true Messiah provokes jealousy in the false one and, um, and so we, there's consequences uh, the Antichrist reacts uh John is told to leave out the court of the temple uh the the gentile portion the court of the gentiles because this is just focusing on the nation of Israel that's the um this the symbol there is the temp the part of the temple that that hosts that holds the worshipers who are the Jews and so he specifically excludes that uh, court of the gentiles uh, there's given a time frame here uh, which we've seen Uh, before and which we'll see again of 42 months uh, 1260 days, three and a half years Uh, this corresponds to the evil career of the Antichrist uh, the second half, the last half of the tribulation, we see that we talked about that last time Uh, Then we see the two witnesses who are given authority. Um, They prophesy. um, They proclaim to the world that these disasters to come are from the Lord during the second half of the tribulation. Uh, There's a specific time given, once again, 1260 days. Um, The description that John gives here in the vision is um, taken from Zechariah chapter 4, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And there's great speculation about who these witnesses might be. Uh, one possibility is Moses and Elijah. There are other possibilities. And we're not told for sure who these two witnesses are. They could just be two men that are not really um, tied to any previous figure. Uh, but they have a special, they're given authority uh, the scripture says and they're given particular signs they're given particular uh, abilities Uh, if anybody attacks them fire comes out of their mouth they're given the power to shut up the sky so that rain won't fall for the whole time of their prophecy which is three and a half years and they're given power to strike the earth with plagues uh, God protects them all the way till the f- their, their time of ministry is finished. And then the beast uh, that came up out of the abyss, well, this is the first reference to the beast. Uh, there are 36 references to the beast, starting with this one and, and uh, going all the way throughout the rest of Revelation, especially in chapter 13 and 17. Uh, this beast is the Antichrist. Uh, we see that for sure uh, in, ver- in chapter 13, so we'll get to that. But we can see from the rest of Scripture that this is definitely the Antichrist, uh, and he's described as the beast here. And the beast kills these two witnesses eventually, um, and everybody sees it, either on TV or live stream. Uh, but it, everybody sees that these two witnesses uh, were a pain in everybody's backside, and then the, the beast kills them. And... Um, And then uh, they're just left there for three and a half days their bodies to be seen on live TV and live stream Um, and then the the dead witness day party uh, comes to an end when they come back to life uh, as we saw last time God breathes the breath of life into them they stand on their feet and then God calls them up to heaven and all of this is witnessed by the whole world live TV live stream witnesses are dead Bodies lay there for three and a half days, come back to life, and ascend into heaven on live TV and live stream. Uh, so that's what we saw last time. Uh, any questions about what we went through last time before we started to do? Okay, so op- if you'll open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to finish out the last few verses of chapter 11 and then start into chapter 12. So Revelation chapter 11 starting with verse 15. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Who can tell me what song borrows its lyrics from Revelation eleven fifteen? The Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus is that, that part of it there is from Revelation It's a quote of a Revelation 11.15. All of uh, Handel's Messiah really is just quoting scripture, but, uh, but that particular, the Hallowed Chorus, is from Revelation 11.15. Um, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying... We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth." And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And then continuing in chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth." And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 years days All right so what's happening here let's uh, let's take a look uh, first as usual I will give you a few paragraphs from John MacArthur So this is uh, John MacArthur's uh, opening paragraphs in his description of this section of scripture he says the sounding of the seventh trumpet marks a significant milestone in the book of Revelation It sets in motion the final events leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of His earthly millennial kingdom. Since both the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls are said to finish God's wrath, the bowls must be part of the seventh trumpet judgment. The seventh trumpet sets in motion the final consummation of God's redemptive plan for the present universe. During its tenure will come the final fury of the day of the Lord judgments, chapter 16, the final harvest of judgment on earth, chapter 11 and 16, and the Lamb's defeat of the kings of the earth, chapter 17, culminating in the final climactic triumph of Christ at Armageddon, chapter 19. The sounding of the seventh trumpet signals God's answer to the prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, from Matthew 6. That answer sweeps through chapters 12 to 22, as God finishes his mighty work of reclaiming creation from the usurper, Satan. Although the seventh trumpet, sounds in, seventh trumpet sounds in chapter 11, verse 15, the judgments associated with it are not described until chapter 15. Chapters 12 to 14 are a digression, taking readers back through the tribulation to the point of the seventh trumpet by a different path. They describe the tribulation not from God's perspective, but from Satan's. The opening campaign of Satan's war of the ages took place in heaven when he rebelled, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. One-third of the angels foolishly and wickedly cast their lots with him. None of them could have known what the eternal consequences of their choice would be. Wanting to be like God, they became as much unlike him as possible. When Adam and Eve plummeted, into corruption by choosing to listen to Satan's lies and disobey God, the human race became embroiled in the cosmic war of the ages. In fact, since the fall, the earth has been the primary theater in which that war has been fought. The final battles of Satan's long war against God are yet to be fought. They will take place in the future during the last half of the seven-year tribulation period the time Jesus called the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. The Lord Jesus Christ will effortlessly crush Satan and his forces in Revelation chapter 19 and send him to the abyss for the duration of the millennial kingdom, chapter 20. After leading a final rebellion at the close of the millennium, Satan will be consigned to eternal punishment in the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, the seventh trumpet will sound near the end of the tribulation, launching the brief but final and devastating bowl judgments just before Christ's return in power and glory. Chapters 6-11 describe the events of the tribulation up to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Chapters 12-14 to 14 recapitulate that same period describing events from Satan's vantage point. In addition, the latter section, section uh, chapters 12 to 14, takes the reader all the way back to the original rebellion of Satan at the very beginning. Uh, the chronological narrative of the tribulation events then resumes in chapter 14. So you see what he's saying here? This this digression in 12 to 14 is not, it's a departure from the chronological stepping through of events. And in fact, as we'll see in today's lesson, part of chapter 12 goes all the way back to Satan's rebellion against God at the very near the very beginning Um, and so we're stepping out of a chronological series it's important to to see that before we launch into what we're going to talk about today okay so let's go back to the scripture and walk through this verse by verse got a lot to cover today Okay, Uh, so then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the hallelujah chorus there. Um, Though it's... uh, uh, so uh, now I won't be singing anytime, uh, up time there, up there on the stage. Um, so a- as I mentioned, as MacArthur said in his introduction, though, it- its effects of the earth were delayed, as with the seventh seal was delayed in chapter eight. Um, there, was, there was, however, an immediate response in heaven, uh, and that response was this exhilaration um, that these things were about to take place. So there were loud voices in heaven, um, essentially praising the Lord and praising the fact that these events were about to take place. Um, this proclamation is connected to the effects of the seventh trumpet, even though they haven't happened yet uh, at this point in the Revelation. Uh, there's unrestrained joy that the power of Satan is to be forever broken, and Christ is to reign, reign supreme as King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, and so with the defeat of the usurper, the question of sovereignty of the world will be forever settled. Uh, it's been settled but it's about to. The culmination is about to come about. Um, and and think back what, during Christ's earthly ministry. One of the things that Satan offered Christ was all the kingdoms of the world. Remember, and so um, Jesus refused. Uh, at that time to do it on Satan's term and in the wrong time, but he's going to take those kingdoms in his, own, in his own terms in the right time uh, here in these events in Revelation. Uh, the use of the singular term kingdom of the world, not kingdoms of the world, but kingdom of the world, introduces an important truth. All the world's national, political, social, cultural, or religious groups are in reality one big kingdom. Under one king. Uh, that king is known in Scripture by many names and titles the adversary, 1 Peter, the evil one, John 17, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, the roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, the ruler of the demons, Mark 3, the ruler of this world, John 12, the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 3, and most commonly the devil and Satan. Um, though God sc- scattered this kingdom at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, Satan still rules over the pieces. Um, God ordains human governments for the well-being of man, as we see in Romans chapter 13, but governments refuse to submit to him and to or acknowledge his sovereignty, Acts chapter 4. So they are essentially part of Satan's kingdom. Um, so, uh, then we see some other interesting facts. The, uh, the tense of the verb, um translated has become here, uh, is what Greek grammarians refer to as proleptic aorist. That's a really weird, uh, really weird uh, word, but it's a tense in Greek that means an event that's in the future, but it's so certain that it's spoken of can be spoken of as if it's already taken place Um, and so has become that tense in greek means it's a future event but you can talk about it in the past tense as if it's already happened because it is so certain Um, and greek is a language which is very rich in these tenses that we don't really have in english and this is this is one of them Uh, so though this event is future from the point of the progress of John's vision so far, uh, it's so certain that the verb form used views it as an already accomplished fact, using this particular Greek um, Mm -hmm. tense. Uh, We also have the phrase, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which emphasizes two realities, kyrgios. Lord usually refers to Jesus throughout the New Testament. But in the book of Revelation up to this point, it's typically been used of God the Father, that Greek word, kyrgios. Um, And this emphasizes their equality of nature. Um, this phrase also describes the kingdom in its broadest sense, looking forward to divine rule over the creation and of the new creation. Uh, so this is ri- there's rich text in here, uh, in this particular passage of scripture that that gives us theological truths, if we're willing to look there. Um, No differentiation is made between the earthly millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. Um, As Paul did, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, he did make a distinction... Here, no distinction is made <clears throat> between the millennial kingdom and the uh, and the new heavens and the new earth. So the end of so what that tells us, I think, is that the end of the thousand years, the millennial kingdom will merge into the eternal kingdom. Uh, Christ starts to reign at the beginning of that millennial kingdom, and He never stops reigning. He reigns and reigns and reigns and reigns. Millennial kingdom moving right into the new heavens and the new earth. Once the reign of Christ begins, it changes form perhaps, but it never ends and is never interrupted and that's why the everybody in heaven is so excited about what's what's about to happen the reign of Christ is going to begin and it's never going to end Uh, the glorious truth that the Lord Jesus Christ will one day rule the earth permeate scriptures, not just here. Uh, The Song of Moses in Exodus 15 uh, indicates that as far back as the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Moses, the scripture anticipated the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ would become the king of the world. And it continues throughout scripture. You see in Psalm 2, Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Micah 4, um, we have this looking forward to the day when God Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And now it's about to happen with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and everybody in heaven is really excited about it. Um, and so, to sum up, this, the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ's earthly kingdom, Zechariah wrote, Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And so Zechariah 14 is a long description of the day of the Lord, but the end of that description puts it that way, and that's a good way to put it. The Lord will be the only one; His name will be the only one on that day, and everybody in heaven's really excited that we, they've finally gotten there at this point in the in the revelation. Anyway. Uh, then uh, verse 16 continues. And then and, and so we've seen the 24 elders before. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give, give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So the elders are just as excited about it as everybody else. So who were the elders? What did the elders represent? So... Um, uh, the first, This particular group, uh, God, uh, John talks about, they represent the glorified raptured church. That's who the 24 elders are. So the church has been raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, and the elders represent that raptured church. And they're eagerly waiting for Christ to take back the earth. And so this is their joyous cry. Um, their prayers for the kingdom to come have been answered. Uh, the Lord's prayer, the part that says, "Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven," here it is. That day has come when that uh, that prayer is answered. Uh, the elders' praise focused on three of God's attributes. Panto Creator, Almighty, describes God's sovereign, omnipotent, irresistible power. And nine of the ten uh, New Testament references uh, to using that Greek word are in this book of Revelation. Almighty, uh, that word for that's translated Almighty here. It has the sense of God exercising His all-encompassing will by means of His irresistible power, uh, and so that's what the elders are focusing on there. Um, the phrase then, who are and who were, expresses God's eternity. Um, as the living God, we see he's described as the living God over and over and over in scripture, uh, especially in the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews. Um, God had no beginning and will have no end. Um, also, he was in that he was existed from the eternity past, and he is in that he exists now and for all eternity future. Uh, this way of expressing God's eternity we've seen three times before in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, it was in there twice. And chapter 4, he was and is. And in those earlier cases, the phrase also, who is to come, was added. So the first three times, who was, who is, who is to come. This time we don't get to who is to come. Why don't we, why don't we get who is to come? Because in this, in this particular case, we're talking about the, the fact that he has come um, and so they that phrase is left off uh, because this was describing the this is this is the culmination and he has come uh, since the present passage viewed christ is already having come and established his kingdom that phrase is not repeated here uh, there are little nuggets like that throughout scripture which um, it, they could be easy to miss Uh, But the Holy Spirit really knows what he's doing when he puts this scripture together. Um, Amen and amen. So this time we don't get to who is to come because there he is. Um, and also interesting, the Antichrist tries to describe himself in similar terms. We'll see in chapter 17 who was and is. He, he tries to describe himself like that because he's a poor imitation of the eternal king of the universe. He's a cheap knockoff. Uh, he's trying to, but he's trying to use the same language for himself. Um, you know Satan's been trying to imitate God from the beginning um, and his beast the dragon who gives his power to the beast the beast tries to do the same thing we see that in chapter 17 so the elders uh, also praise God for his sovereignty because he had taken his great power and begun to reign Um, and so this uh, you have taken Lembano um, is in the perfect tense and the perfect tense in the greek means you started something and so whatever that something is goes on forever so you have taken um that the way that greek is structured means you've you've taken this you've taken the reins this this great power and begun to reign and you will reign and reign and reign and, rain and, rain, and it'll never end because that's what the greek Uh, perfect text uh, tense means uh, here in that sense Um, and then just as an aside um, there are sometimes attempts to you to interpret this as the church reigning Um, and and i think that that doesn't do justice to what this scripture is talking about. So, attempts to equate this glorious reign of Christ over the whole earth with any past event, or with the church, is contradictory, I think, to uh, especially this passage, to, to all of Scripture, to the, to the eschatology of Scripture, but particularly this passage. There's no way this text can be fulfilled except by the universal reign of Christ over the whole earth going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and ever uh, as the prophets had predicted for so so long. Um, okay, continuing. Uh, so, so what's the response... Uh, so, that's, so we've seen the response in heaven to the, the fact that this is going to be the culmination and the reign of Christ and it's going to go on forever and ever. What's the, what's the reaction of the nations? So we see here in verse 18, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name. The small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So the trev- seventh trumpet vision reveals um, no, that the, no longer afraid. So in, in chapter six, we saw that people were terrified by what had happened in the, um, in the seal judgments and the first few trumpet judgments. Um, but now the nations are defiant and enraged at the prospect of Christ's kingdom being established over the whole earth so the verb orgizo uh, translated were enraged uh, that Greek word suggests deep seated ongoing hostility uh, so that Greek word doesn't mean a momentary emotional fit of temper it means a settled burning resentment against God um, it's it's really um they're in a bad uh, they've put themselves in a in a bad position not not this is not a um, a temporary discontent Uh, that this greek term has the has this this deep-seated hostility uh, and connotation to it. it the nations have turned on God and they are set and determined in their opposition against God. That's what the scripture is telling us here. Uh, Eventually they will assemble armies to fight God in chapter 16 and we'll see the culmination of that in chapter 20. Uh, With no desire to repent of sin, uh, angry resentment and hostility against heaven uh, will drive the nations to gather for their destruction at Armageddon. Um, So they are set against God. Uh, So those unbelieving rejectors will have wasted their opportunity to repent at what they acknowledge as God's judgment back in chapter 6. Now we've seen that it's likely, based on what we've seen in the past, that there are some that repent. Uh, but by this point, the vast majority have set their face against God, um, plunged into the depths of hostility and rejection to be punished eventually uh, in an eternal hell. So the coming of God's wrath, uh, like the coming of Christ's kingdom, is so certain that it's once again spoken of as already having happened. Your wrath came. It's the same Greek tense, that it's something that's still in the future, but it's described with this Greek tense saying that it's so certain that you treat it as if it had already happened. Same Greek tense tense once again with his wrath. So the coming of the kingdom is described that way. The coming of God's wrath is also described that way. Uh, the verb uh, it translated came is another of this same Greek text. Uh, same Greek tense. It's a future event treated as if it was uh, had already happened. Um, and so those who think that a loving God will not pour out his wrath on them cling to a false and dangerous hope. That's a bad place to be in, uh, thinking that uh, God is love, and so therefore he, he's not going to—he's uh, uh, he, not also— uh, consumed with wrath against unrighteousness um, it, it, pretending that those things are are not um, compatible and that God is only love and he's not uh, he's not a judge as well is a dangerous uh, false belief um, uh, that, that God will one day judge unbelievers is a constant theme in scripture uh, not just here but uh, Old Testament as well uh, Isaiah 24, 26, 30, Ezekiel 38 and 39, make clear from Old Testament times all the way forward that God will judge unbelievers. Um, and so not only will the seventh uh, trumpet signal the outpouring of God's wrath on earth, but it will also indicate the time has come for the dead to be judged. Uh, very interesting. Uh, time here translates kairos, uh, which refers to a season, era, occasion, or event. So it's it's the season for judging the dead is what it's saying here. Uh, the establishing of Christ's kingdom will be a fitting time for the dead to be judged. So remember, we're talking about these events which are about to happen, the establishing of his kingdom. Um, and it's also then time or the season or the occasion, the right occasion for Uh, the judging of the dead. And uh, there's a list there of um, judging the dead and then also rewards. Um, And so judgment will uh, first be, uh, first of all, be the time for God to reward his bondservants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear his name, small and great. And so this judgment is and negative negative and positive so a a negative judgment on on unbelievers but a positive rewarding of prophets saints those who fear his name all all the the believers Um, so what are are these rewards so uh, does the Bible talk about rewards actually Um, as as a matter of fact it does Um, but of course uh, remember Uh, the power to serve God in a way that's worthy of rewards is itself a gift of God's grace. So we we don't earn these rewards on our own, uh, by our own power. Um, It's a gift of God's grace to have the ability and power to be able to serve such that you're (laughs) worthy of rewards. That itself is a gift of grace. It's grace all the way down the line. But, in fact, the Bible does describe rewards for those who serve faithfully. Um, Paul wrote, "Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Uh, now that labor is in the power of the Holy Spirit. that labor itself is in the power of the Holy Spirit. but the scripture is clear that that labor, even though it's God who gives us the power to do that labor, Labor and obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit is rewarded. Uh, We see that uh, described by Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see it described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 10, Mark chapter 9, Colossians chapter 3, 2 John chapter 8. We have descriptions of rewards for faithful servants of the Lord. And the time for those rewards is now come, uh, in John's vision. Uh, The reward promised believers is that they will inherit the kingdom in both its millennial and eternal phases. Believers are also promised crowns, including the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the crown of life, James 1 and Revelation 2, and the crown of glory, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, So rewards are promised. Uh, But just remember... That the ability to serve faithfully is itself a gift of God uh, God's grace. Um, so we have this judgment uh, will destroy those who destroy the earth. Uh, th- I, I, this um, probably um, I, I wish it didn't need to be said, but it, but I'll say it anyway this is not a reference to those who pollute the environment. this is not a this is this text is not a proof text for environmental activism Um, this is talking about those who pollute the earth with sin Um, and that includes all unbelievers especially in the context of revelation the false economic and religious system called eventually we'll see it called Babylon in chapter 19 Antichrist and his followers and Satan himself who is the ultimate destroyer Satan is uh, the destroyer Um, so that's what this is talking about Destroy those who destroy the earth. Destroy the earth by polluting it with sin. That's what we're talking about here. Um, Not those who don't recycle. Just to be clear. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote that the mystery of lawlessness, and this is in Second Thessalonians chapter two, is already at work in the church age. So the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. Uh, but during the tribulation, it will reach its pinnacle of destructive activity, shredding the very fabric of society in every evil way. So things get worse. And we've we've followed this theme through uh, the book of Revelation with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, and now we're about to have the bold judgments, worse and worse and worse and worse, uh, the mystery of lawlessness that Paul described. Um, and so, w- what's, so? if we look all the way back to the beginning, man is given dominion over the earth, Genesis 1.28. Um, they're supposed to rule over the earth. Man instead fell into sin, and so, of course, Genesis 1.28 is before the fall. So the dominion mandate, dominion over the earth, man is given dominion over the earth as the pinnacle of God's creation before the fall. Um, And then man falls into sin and throughout history has continually corrupted the earth instead. When that corrupting reaches its apex, God will destroy the earth and create a new one. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 21. We'll get a new heavens and a new earth. And we've seen that as a theme in scripture going back to Isaiah. Uh, We also get a description of it in 2 Peter chapter 3. And then we get a description of the temple um, and this illustration of... um, the access to God through Christ and so this is a word picture here of this vision and the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and great hailstorm so uh so what are we talking about here so during the seventh trumpet um, is the promise to believers of unbroken fellowship with God forever so there's terrible things coming for unbelievers but for believers the opening of the holy of holies uh, the fellowship is symbolized by the imagery um The opening of the temple of God, which is in heaven, the place where his presence dwells, as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, and uh, revealed the Ark of his covenant. And the Ark symbolizes the covenant God has promised to men is now available in its fullness. So remember, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. And what happened when Christ was on the cross and uh, he said it was finished, what happened to the veil of the Holy of Holies? It was torn from the top down, uh, symbolizing that the, the Ark of God's Covenant was now available through Christ, uh, his presence. You could you could approach Um, God in his holy of holies through Christ. And this is another word picture of the same thing uh, that John's seeing in his vision. The temple and there's the Ark of the Covenant open for all to see. There's no curtain across it. There it is, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And so this is God's promise uh, to his to the believers even in the midst of his judgment on unbelievers the fury of his wrath uh, he throws open the holy of holies Um, as part of this whole vision John sees also this the holy of holies open with the ark right there Um, and draws drawing believers into his presence so um, the ark symbolizes God's communion with the redeemed because it was there that blood sacrifices were offered to atone for men's sins. And, uh, and so Christ's sacrifice had, uh, had, had satisfied um, uh, a propit- propitiation for God's wrath once for all time. And there's the ark open for all to see. Uh, So it's a great word picture. Um, We get both. We see God's wrath. We also see there's the Ark of the Covenant open to all who come through Christ. Um, And of course, we also get earthquake, lightning, and hail again, as we've seen many times, uh, associated with God's wrath, earthquake, lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, and hailstorm. Okay, so, uh, but along with the ark, uh, there were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, uh, similar events associated with God's uh, majesty and glorious heavenly throne we saw in chapter four, Uh, we saw also in chapter eight, we'll see again in chapter 16 uh, that associated with his judgment come peals of thunder, lightning, and earthquake and hailstorms. so the message then of the seventh trumpet is that christ is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords that is about to happen and it's so certain we use the greek tense that that looks like it's already happened Um, so he's one day going to take rule of the earth away from the usurper satan and from earth's petty human rulers Uh, and history is moving Inexorably towards this culmination, and so um, these words have been written uh, for 2,000 years, uh, nearly 2,000 years, Um, but they're still written in the Greek tense as if they had already happened because they are so certain. This is where history is leading, uh, is the 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 uh, the teaching of all of Scripture pointing forward to this event in the future ah so let's take a breath um we're we're finished with chapter 11 and i'm about to launch into chapter 12 any questions about what we've gotten here at the end of chapter 11 there's a lot here. Yes, go ahead. So, yeah. So um, there are a couple of places in Revelation that say that their hearts were hardened and that they uh, they didn't repent. The, those who were left didn't repent. And I think in in most cases, I take that to be a blanket, a, a kind of a general statement about what most people are doing. I don't I don't think those things that we've read previously say that when it says that uh, and they they didn't repent, they hardened their hearts and didn't repent, I don't think that means that 100% of all the people hardened their heart and didn't repent uh, because we keep getting these description of saints that come out of the great tribulation. So, somebody's being saved because we see that. We see this these saints that are saved out of the tribulation. So, obviously people are being saved in spite of the fact that the general, um, uh, you can generally describe people as being unrepentant. Um, yeah, and, and I so I think that applies to a number of these different cases that we see here in, in Revelation. So it seems like not. It seems like that's correct. That you don't have, uh, you know, big mass revivals with you know everybody, you know, everybody repenting. You don't get that. But you do get people being saved, I think. I think that's the general story that we're getting. Right. And so, yeah, so there is some, there's some mystery to us here that that God elects, uh, and so he knows from the very beginning of time who is going to repent, who he's go- going to regenerate through the Holy Spirit and, and grant faith unto repentance. Um, and yet, we're commanded to, evangelize the lost um and so um those two things are obviously not incompatible god doesn't do that he doesn't he's he's consistent he's a god of order and so um it, it can be a mystery to me well why do why do i why should i bother to preach the gospel to proclaim the gospel to pray for somebody that's that's not saved when god's already decided from the beginning whether he's going to repent or not he's going to grant him faith under repentance he's going to grant him regeneration from spiritual death to spiritual life why should i pray Uh, why should i pray for anything for that matter if god is sovereign over everything. He already knows what he's going to do. He's going to do what he's going to do. Why should I pray? And yet we're, we're commanded to pray. And so there's, there's many real answers to that question. Yeah, Larry. but <coughs> Yes. And the errors are the means he uses to accomplish yep yep yeah all the way up to the bowl full of the prayer of the saints being tossed down on earth to to yeah uh, at one point yeah so uh so there's lots of things that we wrestle with um why why does god do it that way Um, but in the end um we need to have faith and by faith i mean trust that god is good and that his way is the right way and it's not a blind faith It's a faith based on everything we read in Scripture about how trustworthy God is. And so trusting God is not a blind leap in the dark. Uh, It's a reasonable, rational thing to do. It's a a reasonable conclusion to make that, well, I've read about this God. He's a faithful God. He's a promise-keeping God. He he, he does what He says He's going to do. So I have reason to trust him, and so it's reasonable to have faith. Christian faith is reasonable faith. All right, uh, I got to get through a, a lot still, so let's uh, uh, let's turn to chapter twelve. So, uh, chapter twelve, the first few verses we're going to go through here. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon, and under her feet and. Uh, the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars and she was with child and she cried out being in labor in pain to give birth. So here at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, we, before describing the final war, we're going to get to the final war. John first introduces the main characters involved. The woman is Israel, the dragon is Satan, and the male child is Jesus Christ. I'll just clear that up from the very beginning. Uh, the first thing John saw in his vision was a great sign. Uh, the first of seven signs that we're going to get in the last half of revelation we'll get a sign here in uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13 we'll get two more in chapter 15 and chapter 16 and chapter 19 we'll get these great signs and uh, the, the greek word is mega which uh, which we use in in english mega great uh it appears repeatedly in this vision mega 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 everything John saw seemed to be huge either in size or in significance everything is described as mega great Uh, uh, semion sign describes a symbol that points to a reality so uh, the literal approach to interpreting scripture allows for the normal use of symbolic language but understands that it points to a literal reality so it's a symbol that points to something real Um, In this case, the description plainly shows that the woman John saw was not an actual woman. Uh, We'll see that when we get to verse 17, for sure. Uh, The woman is the second of four symbolic women identified in Revelation. The first was an actual one, but had a symbolic name, Jezebel, in one of the letters to the churches. Uh, She was a false teacher and symbolizes Paganism. Uh, So this is the second one. The third one is depicted as a harlot and appears in uh, Revelation 17, and she represents the apostate church. The fourth woman will be described in Revelation chapter 19 as the bride of the Lamb and represents the true church. So this is woman number two out of four symbolic women. Uh, Some argue that the woman in the present vision represents the church, but the context, especially when we get to verse five, she represents Israel. Uh, The Old Testament pictures Israel as a woman, the adulterous wife of the Lord, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea, uh, whom God will ultimately restore to himself, Isaiah chapter 50. Um, A reference to the Ark of the Covenant, Towards the end of uh, chapter 11 that we just saw, adds further support for identifying the woman as Israel. Uh, So Israel's presence in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is in keeping with God's promise to her of a kingdom. Isaiah 65, Ezekiel 37, Daniel chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 8, and also national salvation in Zechariah 12 and 13, uh, and then Romans 11. So John saw that the woman, hey, he has a discri- there's a vision. Uh, of course, and in, in this, this is all symbolic, but it points to a spiritual reality. He saw the woman was clothed with the sun and had the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars. Where have we seen that symbol before? Of the sun and the moon and the stars. Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream. So this is using imagery from the Old Testament from Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, the sun, In that case, the sun represented Jacob, the moon Rachel, and the stars were Joseph's brothers. In that uh, dream, in this vision, the woman is clothed with a sun, reflects redeemed Israel's unique glory and brilliance and dignity because of her exalted status as God's chosen nation, which we saw all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Having described the woman's attire, John noted her condition. She was with child. Uh, That's also a familiar Old Testament imagery describing Israel. uh, That the woman is pregnant confirms her identity as Israel. The church cannot be a mother since she is not yet married. Being pregnant, the woman cried out. Being in labor and in pain to give birth, just like a pregnant woman In labor feels pain. So the nation of Israel was in pain waiting for Messiah to come forth. The cause of the pain is the persecution by Satan who attempts to destroy the mother. The nation was in pain when the Messiah came the first time. So will it be at his second coming. Pain for the nation of Israel represented by this woman. Uh, now we get a second character the woman's mortal enemy dramatically portrayed by another sign appearing in heaven Um, we'll we'll get to verse 9 we're not going to cover verse 9 today but verse 9 clearly identifies the great red dragon as Satan Um, Satan of course is not an actual dragon any more than Israel is an actual woman uh, but a malevolent spirit being a fallen angel so these are symbols pointing to a reality uh, the the woman symbolically points to the real nation of Israel the red dragon symbolically points to the real Satan Um, so the symbolic language describes him uh, pictures the reality of his person and character Um, only in Revelation is Satan described as a dragon Uh, before that he's called among many other names a serpent and he appears of course as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and described as a certain serpent by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, so a dragon is much more terrifying, and nobody likes snakes, but a dragon is even more terrifying, especially when with seven heads. Um, so that's what John sees. He sees a dragon with seven heads uh, and ten horns. Um, so in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word translated dragon, Isaiah 27 and 51, is also translated... Monster or sea monster in Genesis one, Job seven, Psalm seventy four, one forty eight. Many different passages. That same word. Um, and so remember. So how do we figure out what a uh, what a Greek word means when we're talking about the Old Testament? How do we know that from the, from the Septuagint? So there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jews did before the time of Christ. And so we can look. We can find Greek words in the New Testament and look at the Septuagint to see if they appear in the Old Testament, those same Greek words. So that's how we, we can make this comparison, where this word dragon, that Greek word here in the Old, in the New Testament, we can look at the Septuagint and see if that Greek word is used anywhere in the Old Testament. And it is uh, to be a monster or a sea monster, um, large, ferocious, and terrifying animal. Um, Let's see. Um, Then the dragon is further described as having seven heads and ten horns and having seven diadems on the seven heads. So a seven-headed monster that rules the world with crowns. Um, Satan has been allowed by God to rule the world since the fall and will continue to do so until the seventh trumpet sounds. The seven heads with their seven diadems, diadema, Uh, royal crowns symbolizing power and authority. So diadema is royal crowns Uh, not a victor's crown as we saw previously. It's a different Greek word This is royal crowns with uh, symbolizing power and authority Uh, Represents seven consecutive world empires running their course under Satan's dominion. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome and the Antichrist future empire Um, So there's some speculation there Obviously, because those these empires are not listed here, uh, but we do have uh, some descriptions of the future Antichrist empire in chapter seventeen, and we have had uh, prophecies about various empires um, throughout Scripture as well. And it's obvious that God has used secular nations pagan nations as uh, to do his will uh, to execute his judgment in the past but we will get a final kingdom ruled by the Antichrist and this the speculation about the ten um, we get a description of what looks like a ten-nation confederacy let me put it that way Uh, the ten horns represent the kings who will rule under Antichrist we'll see that in chapter 17 And we get a a prediction of it all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. So Satan's evil uh, influence is not limited to the human realm, of course, but extended first into the angelic realm. And so, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, this section, chapter 12 to 14, is kind of a digression, and it describes events going all the way back to the beginning. This sweeping of the third of the stars from heaven goes all the way back to Satan's fall. And so we've stepped out of a strict timeline that's going through uh, events at the end times. And, and some of these descriptions go all the way back to the beginning. Um, and so this picture of the dragon's tail sweeping a third of the stars from heaven, that's a reference to... Um, the Satan's angels, Satan's fallen angels. Um, the, this um, the idea that when Satan fall, fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Um, So, these stars uh, were originally belonging to heaven, and that's their proper abode, but these angels depicted symbolically as stars, and we've seen that before. We saw in Revelation chapter 9, we see in Job chapter 38 as well. Um, This is uh, the symbol, these stars symbolize... Fallen angels. Uh, So we get the description in Isaiah chapter 14 of Satan's fall, also Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, and we see this repeated again that he swept a third of the angelic host with him. And along with their defeated leader, those evil angels were cast from heaven to the earth. So they threw them to the earth. Um, and so there's your seven-headed dragon there. That's the best picture I could find. It's a little blurry. So that's a seven-headed dragon there. And notice that one of the heads has got three horns on it, so that you can get up to ten, I guess. Is that right? No, that would still only be nine. Uh, some one of them, one of the others must have two. Oh yeah, one of the others has two. Good. So there's ten horns there. Uh, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. Uh, the pregnant lady standing there, the dragon getting ready to devour the child. Uh, notice his tail is sweeping stars out of the sky. Um, so this is kind of something. John's seeing something, some vision that symbolizes Israel and the and Satan, but it's in the form of this fantastical, uh, these fantastical symbols. Um, And so then we see that the dragon is standing before the woman. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what are we seeing here? Um, We're seeing that uh, Satan has spent all of history uh, tr- trying to persecute the people of God. So Abel was righteous, obedient man, so Satan prompted Cain to kill him. Uh, we had this uh, bizarre event in Genesis chapter 6 of uh, Satan trying to uh, corrupt mankind. Uh, during the period of the judges, Satan used Israel's pagan neighbors to try to destroy them. During the divided kingdom, the messi- messianic line, the, the, the line from David to Christ, uh, twice, dimpled, uh, dwindled to one child, uh, almost, almost wiped out. Just one, one person left. Uh, still later, Satan inspired Haman to undertake a genocide against the Jews. So Satan has been trying to to destroy the the, Jew, the, the God's people. Um, all the way back to Abel, and all the way forward through the nation of Israel, uh, Satan has been desperately trying to destroy them, um, and so here and here he is depicted as trying to destroy the child that Israel's giving birth to, the one special child that Israel's giving birth to. So he failed to wipe out God's people all all along throughout history, and he's he's desperately attempting to murder the Messiah himself. Um, And so Satan attacked Jesus through Herod, who attempted to kill the baby Jesus. So that's what this is symbolizing here. The outset of the Lord's earthly ministry, Satan tempted him to mistrust God, Uh, He tried to use the people of Nazareth to kill Jesus, uh, but he passed through their midst. Um, His attempts, Satan's attempts all along to try to uh, pervert or uh, kill Jesus during his earthly ministry all failed uh, because his hour had not yet come. Uh, And then even the devil's seeming victory at the cross was really his ultimate defeat. And that, uh, that's described in Colossians chapter 2, in Hebrews 2, and First Peter 3, 1 John 3, over and over again, that what seemed like Satan's victory um, turned into his ultimate defeat. Um, and so, in spite of Satan's relentless efforts throughout history, what we've, we've, we've seen described, Israel still gives birth to the Messiah. The Messiah is still born. The male child. So the male child is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The fulfillment of prophecy, going back to Genesis 3.15. Son of Abraham, uh, a member of the tribe of Judah, and a descendant of David. All the prophecies of who the Messiah would be, uh, Jesus fulfilled. And he's born in spite of the efforts of the dragon. The dragon has been trying to prevent this all the way from the very beginning all the way up to during Jesus' uh, earthly ministries, trying to kill the child that Israel's giving birth to. Uh, so this is a recapitulation of, of really all of history here. So we've stepped out of a uh, minute-by-minute description of what's happening in the end times, and we've looked back all the way to the very beginning of Satan's fall, and we've and now we're talking about the incarnation, uh, Jesus' is birth and earthly ministry um, so um, Satan's unable to prevent it uh, nor will Satan be able to hinder Christ's coronation he will rule all the nations with an iron rod it says here during his earthly millennial kingdom so um, this uh, the, the particular Greek word that's a translated rule here has a connotation of destroy as well so Uh, between Christ's incarnation and his coronation came his exaltation when he was caught up to God and to his throne as his ascension so we get a description of that here so we have uh, Christ's birth we have Christ's uh, ascension as well described in this passage of Revelation Um, so he's caught up to God in his throne when he uh, was was exalted into heaven um so And that signified the, the, the resurrection itself and then his ascension into heaven signify the Father's acceptance of his work of redemption, Christ's work of redemption. Um, and, uh, and in spite of all this, of course, Satan doesn't give up. Um, he was unable to stop Christ's birth. He's unable to, to stop Christ's resurrection and ascension. He's, he will be unable to prevent his rule as well. And yet... Satan still assaults God's people. Uh, He's already instigated the genocidal massacre of Jews in Europe during World War II, as well as the death of countless thousands throughout history. So, Satan, if nothing else, is persistent. Uh, He keeps losing, but he keeps fighting. Um, so during the tribulation, Satan will increase his efforts to destroy the Jewish people so that the nation cannot be saved as the Bible promises. So there's all these prophecies, Zechariah chapter 12, we got uh, Romans chapter 11 about Israel being saved. And so Satan's going to try to prevent that too. Just like he's tried to prevent all the rest of it, he's going to try to prevent that by trying to massacre the Jews during the tribulation uh, through his beast. Um, and so uh, the woman flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So 1,260 days, that's once again three and a half years. So, what is that? That's the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. Um, the Jewish nation is going to flee. Um, will that be every single person? Probably not. Uh, because there's going to be somebody still there in Jerusalem that the two witnesses are preaching to during the second half of the tribulation. Uh, so, But God will frustrate Satan's attempts to destroy Israel during the, uh, the great tribulation uh, by hiding his people, just as the Lord uh, promised and predicted in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Um, the Antichrist desolation of the temple will send the Jewish people fleeing into the wilderness. So the abomination that causes desolation that really kicks off the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, will cause many Jews to flee. And Jesus described that in Matthew chapter 24. Um, so we don't know exactly where they flee. Uh, there's a description in Daniel chapter 11 that makes it seem like it, sh- it will probably be east of the Jordan, south of the Dead Sea, in the land which was previously occupied by Moab, Ammon, and Edom. That's what Daniel chapter 11 says, that they will flee to, uh, the Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And, and if we go back in history, the geography of that says east of the Jordan, south of the Dead Sea. Well, Uh, so wherever their hiding place is they'll be they'll be nourished by god um so uh oh we've run out of time i apologize so uh let me just um uh stop i'll stop there um any last minute question before i close this up in prayer all right let me uh close this with prayer dear heavenly father we thank you for our time together with you and your word Uh, We we thank you for uh, the fact that you revealed all of these things to us. And please, please, Lord, help us to use it as motivation uh, to share the gospel. Uh, to share the gospel with people um, because we know what the end is. And we know what the end is for unbelievers, and it's not a pretty thing. Uh, Help us to use that as motivation, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to worship you as a corporate uh, body of Christ and pray that our worship will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.